<clears throat> okay, we are going to depart from Psalms for a little bit. We've been in Psalms. Uh, we went all through the uh, Psalms of Ascent. I think the last time that we were in Second Kings was in November. But we're going to go back to Second Kings for a little bit today, and we're going to conclude the history of Israel, or the Northern Kingdom, <clears throat> today. And then next week we will spend a little bit of time in what happened after that in the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, I put this on your notes, and you were going to have them again if I would have brought the printed documents, but we had this last time we, we went through this section, and this is a list of Israel's kings and for both the northern and the southern kingdom. And you can see by reading this list that basically every king in Israel's part did that go off? Every let me now that we have it back showing every king in the northern kingdom when he's described at the end of his reign it says he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Every one of them. With the possible exception of uh, Jehu, who did a little bit of good, but then didn't. He wiped out the Baal worship, but then he didn't continue on. <clears throat> so what we have, starting in 2 Kings 16, is that King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet with the king of Assyria. And earlier in that chapter, we saw how Ahaz gave what he could for help from the Assyrians. But now he started worshiping the gods of the Assyrians. So in verse 10, we read this in 2 Kings 16. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet with Tilgath-Pileser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built an altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, he viewed the altar then the king drew near the altar and went up and burnt his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. Now the first thing you see is the king is doing the sacrifice. He's doing, he's doing the altar. Well, that's wrong. Kings aren't supposed to do that. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord he removed from the front of the house. <clears throat> from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord and put it on the side of his altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, On the great altar burn the morning bird offering and the evening grain offering and the king's bird offering and his grain offering with the bird offering and all the people of the land with their grain offering and their drink offering. And throw all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. And Uriah the priest did all this. So Uriah didn't say, eh, eh, no, I'm not doing that. He just did it. 
And then we read in verse 17. So Ahaz cut off the frames of the stands and removed the basin from them, and he took down the sea from the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on the stone pedestal and covered the way for the Sabbath that had been built inside the house and the outer entrance for the king he caused to go around the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria, he was placating him and doing what was wrong in the sight of God so the king of Assyria would be nice to him. There are some commentators that debate that Ahaz offered the sacrifices that it's voluntary. He did it because he wanted to. Some people say that he had to because of the king of Assyria. But regardless of the reason, he shouldn't have done it. Whether he did it voluntarily or he did it because the king of Assyria told him to do, he should have said no. Now, you've got to remember, Ahaz right now is the king of Judah. That's what we're talking about, Judah here. We're not talking about Israel. So Judah was now a vassal state of the king of Assyria. But that didn't mean that they were obliged or obligated to worship the Assyrian gods. Maybe he was doing it to gain favor with the king of Assyria, so he'd leave him alone. But it was a poor choice to forsake the creator God and worship a false god of any type. The legacy Ahaz left is not one to be modeled. Paul House commented, he said, he left a legacy of appeasement and syncretism unmatched to this time. Assyria can count on him for money, loyalty, and zealous acceptance of their gods. He seemed genuinely pleased to serve a powerful master who can deliver him from the regional foes. So he did this to try to better his nation. Now we go on, starting in 2 Kings 17, we're going to go back to Israel now. And this is going to be the destruction, the final destruction of Israel by Assyria in verses 1 to 41. It says here, in the twelfth year of King Ahaz of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned for nine years. So, Two presidential terms plus one year. Okay, helps us kind of bring it to today. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Very typical of a king of Israel. Yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalamanzer, king of Assyria. And Hosea became a vassal and paid him tribute. Just like Judah was doing at this time. But... The king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to the king of Egypt and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. So for some reason, Hosea thought he could not pay the tribute, the vassal tribute, and get away with it. 
The kingdom of Israel is in its final gasp. As we noted earlier, the kings of Israel had consistently done what was evil in God's sight. And what was that evil? It was to worship false God and not worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And sadly, that began with Jeroboam. And there was not one king that did good in the sight of, the law, of, of God. The only good thing that happened, really, and it was only for a part of his reign, is Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, and we went over that in 2 Kings chapter 10. Now Israel is dealing with Assyria. Now Assyria was extremely powerful at that time. And you've got to remember, Judah and Israel were not extremely large, powerful countries. At, the, at their height, Assyria ruled from Egypt to the middle of modern-day Turkey to the Persian Gulf. At one point, they had the strongest military power in the world and ruled the largest empire up to that time that was assembled in world history. These were the big dogs. <clears throat> they were considered masters of war. They mastered torture and bragged about it. The Assyrians depicted torture in great, teal, in great detail on the walls of their palaces. They cut off limbs. They created tablets concerning, telling all about what they did <clears throat> and the punishment they carried out. They, they, they cut off arms, legs, gouged out eyes, and left the poor victims to roam around after their eyes were gouged out. They were proud of their mass executions. They loved to impale their victims on large stakes. And you've probably seen it in movies, you know, some guys stick. Well, the Assyrians first started that kind of stuff. And they did that to instill fear and terror into the rest of the population. If you walked into a city and they had all these guys sitting up there impaled on the stake, you wouldn't be thinking, oh, let's have a party. You'd be going, whoa, what's going on here? The stake was driven into the body under the ribs, and the victim's weight caused the stakes to protrude, protrude deeper and deeper into the body. It was a slow death, and it was terrifying. Although the impalement was the Assyrian preference, they also invented crucifixion. Just to increase the cruelty just a bit more. With this backdrop, this is what he was like, this is what Hosea was looking at. He was willing to pay the tribute to Assyria, but then, after he had done it for a few years, we don't know how long, he tried to get Egypt to be a friend and ceased paying tribute to Assyria. During his nine-year reign, he failed to worship and follow God, and then he provoked the Assyrians. He thought, well, maybe the Egyptians can help me. Well, the person that could have helped them was God, but he didn't turn there. Possibly why he thought he could get away with it. I mean, what would cause you to think you could well, just stop paying them and they won't know the difference? Is because during his reign, there had been... <clears throat> Two new monarchs in Assyria since uh, a, a guy named Tilgoth Pleser III had established power in the region. So he had died, somebody else came up, he died, someone else came up, maybe I can get away with it. I don't know if he was thinking that, 
possibly he was thinking that. The successors, <clears throat> Shalamanzer and Sargon II, continued the policies of, pri- of the prior ruler, but we don't know if that impacted Hosea's move away or not. Possibly. A description of what happened is brief, <clears throat> but we do know what took place. In verse 4, Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Verse 5, Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria for three years and besieged it. They besieged it for three years. In verse 6, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and the cities of the Medes. From, from the, this brief description, we know that Hosea stopped paying tribute, hoping an alliance with Egypt would be sufficient to keep Assyria at bay, but it wasn't. You know, God had given them prophets and warnings and clear messages. Elisha and Elijah had told them. The writings of Moses in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, told them. God told them through Joshua and the prophets that followed them. God told Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, in 1 Kings eleven thirty-five, He said, But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hands, and I will give you the ten tribes. That's he, I will give you Jeroboam, the ten tribes. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as, my, as David my servant did, I will be with you and build you a sure house. As I built for David, I will give Israel to you. I mean, Jeroboam had been promised this long kingdom if he followed God. But for over 220 years, that's about how long it had been, starting with Jeroboam himself, every king in Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And their actions, as we read many times, their actions caused Israel to sin. The words of the prophet Ahijah in 1 Kings 14, uh, 14 to 16 came to pass, where he said, Moreover, The Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. That's because of Jeroboam's sin. And henceforth the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave their fathers and scatter them from beyond the Euphrates because they have made their Asherim provoking the Lord to anger and he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. They've been told. Very interesting if you compare the prophets in the Bible. How many prophets in the Bible said, you know what? You're going to have plenty. You're going to be blessed. You're going to have all that you want. You're going to live in peace. That's what today's NAR prophets say. Every one of them. The prophets in the Bible told 
what God wanted to tell them. And Ahijah, who's not a well-known prophet, told them exactly what God had said. And he, and he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam. And that's exactly what we see happening here. So by using the Assyrians, a totally, totally ungodly nation, God removed Israel out of his sight. What the Assyrians did with the regions they captured is kind of dis, uh, stated here, <clears throat> and they did this all the time, was to scatter those they captured around their empire and then to resettle the land with somebody else. And that was to keep future rebellions from cropping up. If we were all buddies and we were a nation, well, I'll take you and I'll put your clue over here and you over there and you over there and you'd never see each other anymore. There was no... There was no uh, email that you could text, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't see anybody again. You would be by yourself, and you would be scattered, and you wouldn't be able to gather together for any kind of a uprising. And that's what they did, and it was effective, and that's what they did with Israel. Now, the next thing we see, that's what happened to Israel. They were destroyed. But why did they fall? Well, because Assyria was strong. Well, the Bible tells us more about that. And we could dive into the little bit more of the history of what was taking place in the region at that time. But it really isn't necessary. Israel was captured. Not because of the power of the Assyrians. Israel was captured not because they sought an alliance with Egypt and stopped paying the tribute, even though God had told them not to make alliances with Egypt. I mean, even trying that was, was a violation of a commandment of God. And by the way, Egypt didn't have the power at that time to do anything with Assyria anyway. <clears throat> the capture of Israel was due to their departing from the proper worship of God. Period. Had they remained true to God and worshipped him exclusively, they would not have been conquered by any nation regardless of the power or the strength of that nation. This is brought out beginning in verse 7 of 2 Kings 17. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the land of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did, seek, did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city, they set up themselves pillars of an asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers. 
that and that I sent you by my servants, the prophets. The disobedience of Israel is what caused it, and it took place over centuries. In Israel itself, is 220 years since Jeroboam. Now, we tend to think that because God doesn't act immediately, he will never act. I, yeah, it's, it, oh, do something. 220 years later. When I look at all of those who have and are still blaspheming God, both ministered and, 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 and lay people today, and you don't have to look very far and you can see it. And it's getting, getting more blatant and more bold and more public every day. It's easy to think that they are not, nor they will be judged by God for their ungodly actions. We covered this a little bit when we studied Psalm 73. Beginning with the last portion of Psalm 73, 17, we read how, just before that, we read how they were prosperous and all these ungodly people were prosperous. But we read then, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set up, set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And at the time that Assyria came, they might have thought, wow, where'd this come from? It's been going on. And God said, time. And in Israel, these multiple back-to-back generations had disobeyed God and false gods, and now God was bringing judgment to the nation due to that disobedience. When you ask that, when you see that, I had to ask myself this question. How long will God allow the blasphemy and the disobedience to continue with what we see today? We don't know, but it will come. And when it does, God will make them fall to ruin and destroy them in a moment. 2 Peter 3, 8-10 is a sobering reminder to us that this judgment of God will come. It says in 2 Peter 3, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. And then going on in in verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing that this, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. It's going to come. It's going to come, and we need to be take care that we are not carried away. Oh, these guys are getting away with everything today. Incredible stuff. Now, in beginning in verse 14, going back to 2 Kings with Israel, 
we are given a little more insight of why people would not follow the Lord. Verse 14 says, But they would not listen, but were stubborn. Hmm, that's a pretty good description right there. As their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and warnings that he gave them. They went after false gods and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not, not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made the Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings. I just, that just makes me shudder. And used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Does God get angry? Absolutely. Today we have so many people, oh, God is love. God is love. Yes, he is. But God's also very capable and not afraid to exercise anger. And he's justified in his anger. So a list of the offenses that we see in this section, you read it and go, oh, okay. But then you start looking at these. They did not listen in verse 14. They were stubborn in verse 14. They did not believe in the Lord in verse 14. They despised God's statutes and covenant in verse 15. They followed false idols in verse 16. They have 15. In verse 16, they abandoned the commandments of the Lord. Verse 16, they made idols of their own. Now, <clears throat> the idols that they mentioned were used to represent the God that they said they followed. The golden calves, that wasn't to follow a false god. They thought that was to follow the true god. They were that demented. And they also made idols to represent pagan deities. They sacrificed their children. And they used divination and omens. Any way you look at that list, it's a huge indictment on the people. Um, I would think not. Yeah, but the same the same following after spirits would probably apply. I could maybe look up and get a you know better definition of what that what that ties into. But that's a good question. Another thing to remember is that many of them and Ahab, you know the guy that was married to Jezebel, is a good example. One example, he was trying to play both sides. Giving some worship to God while worshiping other deities like Baal, like his wife did. They were unwilling to worship God only or exclusively. And Jesus, when he was being tempted by Satan in Luke 4.8, he quoted from Deuteronomy 6.13 in response to Satan's temptation. And he said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and only shall you serve him. <clears throat> in verse 19, 
we have a short account of similar sin issues that Judah, the southern kingdom, had as well. Now, while Assyria was allowed to take the northern kingdom at this time and not the kingdom of Judah, judgment was also coming to Judah. We're going to see that in the remaining chapter of 2 Kings. It's just 135 years down the road. And the judgment's going to be a little different. Instead of being scattered, they're going to be captive to Babylon. Verse 21. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of... No, this is in 2 Kings when it first started. They made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. They never come back. They were assimilated in wherever they were sent and and the northern kingdom has never returned to Israel. Israel's issues began with their very first king, Jeroboam, and they continued unabated until, uh, you know, in the sins that Jeroboam had started. And what did Jeroboam start? He built two golden calves. He said, we're going to worship God in Samaria because if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to start siding with Rehoboam, you're going to come back and you're going to kill me. Well, God told him, if you worship me, I'll take care of you. But he didn't believe that. So he tried to protect himself and the people by building these golden calves in this place of worship in Samaria, and all he did was set about their demise. He put them on an ungodly path that would bring them to their ultimate destruction. Now, interestingly, what we learn, typically, the Assyrians, when they led the conquered people away on journeys of potentially hundreds of miles, they conquered these people. Just visualize this if you can. They would take the captives and they would strip them naked. And they would attach them together with a system of strings and fish hooks pierced between their lower lips. They would then, so they were hundreds of miles strung up, strung along like a bunch of fish that could walk. I mean, again, these people were not, there was no Geneva Convention, all right? No way to, no, they're going to treat the prisoners as evil as they could. Then they would resettle the captives in other lands. You can just picture the total humility that these people went through. They were totally humbled. one commentator said this it seems that Sargon II the brother and successor of Shalemanzer finished the siege that three year siege that we read about or at least took credit for it and he gets that from Assyrian tablets in Assyrian history and it says this the men of Samaria with their kings were hostile to me and consorted not to carry out their vassal obligations and to bring tribute to me, so they fought me. Now again, this is an Assyrian, hist- you know, their history. I clashed with them and took as booty 27,280 people with their chariots and their gods, 
which would be the golden calves, in wh whom they trusted. I incorporated 200 chariots into my army. The rest of the people I made to dwell within Assyria. I restored the city of Samaria and made it greater than before. Well, of course, every king's going to tell you that. You know, look what I did. I mean, we get the same thing. Just listen to the State of the Union. Okay, no matter who the president is, that guy did incredible stuff, like almost superhuman stuff, right? And you could go back for probably everyone that's ever been stated on that deal. <clears throat> but I think it's interesting, he stated he took their gods. <clears throat> but he really didn't take their gods because those weren't their gods. He didn't know. <clears throat> and in the next verses, this becomes very clear. So let's go to verse 24. It gets kind of interesting here. <clears throat> and the king of Assyria brought the people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharavim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria. So this is the people he's resettling back into Samaria, where he took the, the, the people of Israel out. <clears throat> and they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Of course they didn't, because they didn't know anything about him. <clears throat> Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. <clears throat> so the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Well, that's interesting. All the lions were coming and killing the people that they had you know, resettled there were being killed by lions, and they attributed that to God's action. And they, they were correct. Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there. And let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests, we don't have his name, whom they carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. That's an interesting passage. I don't know if you've read that you know, recently. But as they typically did, the Assyrians resettled the land that was in the northern kingdom and we need to understand this, that while the northern kingdom was captured, God was not captured. And he's making it clear to all that this capture was only obtainable because he allowed it and he foreordained it, not because of the power the Assyrians possessed. And that's going to become very clear in a few weeks when we get to Second Kings 19. But we'll get to there later. <clears throat> I imagine that this narrative caught your interest a little bit. It did mine. God provided for those coming into the way, um, God provided for those coming into the land a way that they could know about Him and how they can be taught to fear the Lord. You ever heard of the term the Good Samaritan? Well, they weren't Israelites. They were these people that the Assyrians resettled in that land, right? Interesting stuff. You know, the Christian and the non-believing world need to be taught this today as well as how to fear the Lord. 
What is the fear of the Lord? There's this guy, I checked him out a little bit, asked, actually asked Jim about him too, named Michael Reeves, who wrote a book that says, What is the Fear of the Lord, I think is the title of the book. And in the overview, he pointed out that this is a, quote, Fear marked not by anxiety, but by enjoyment of God. In Scripture, God's people are commanded to put off sinful fears and instead cultivate a healthy and happy fear of their awesome God. As believers learn to truly fear the Lord, they will take part in the pivotal role the church plays in exhibiting his divine qualities of holiness, blessedness, happiness, wholeness, and beauty to the world. That's a pretty good, pretty good definition. Now, tying this back to Israel, the reason God chose Israel to be his people was not because of Israel's strength. was not because of Israel's knowledge. It wasn't their standing. It wasn't they were beautiful people and everybody else was ugly. In Deuteronomy 7, 7-9, God tells Israel why he chose them. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the other peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people, but that, that the Lord set his love and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh of Egypt. Therefore, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, and the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. To a thousand generations, that's a lot. There hadn't even been a thousand generations since that time happened to today. There's only been under 200. Okay, so that this means as far as you want to go. God chose the nation of Israel to be the people through whom the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would be born. But that was not the only reason. God's desire for Israel would that be that they would go and teach others about him. Israel was to be a nation of priests, prophets, and missionaries to the world. God's intent was for Israel to be a distinct people, a nation who pointed others to God in his promised provision of a redeemer or a messiah. So here we see that even though the Israelites, the northern kingdom, was removed from the land and scattered across the Assyrian land, God was showing, number one, he was greater than the gods of Assyria by bringing in the lions. And he was showing that he would still arrange for the proper worship of himself to be conducted in the land, even though the people were not Israeli. It also shows that while the king and most of the people were trying to split their worship between God and the false gods or the idols of the, relig you know, of, of, of the region, at least there was one priest, probably more, who remained true to God. Because remember, Elijah and Elisha, ma mainly Elisha because he was the latest one, he had fellow prophets that were with him. And perhaps this is where they went to find this acceptable priest. We don't know. But then we see the result of that, starting in verse 29. 
<clears throat> and for me, this is where it gets kind of personally interesting for today. But every nation still made God of its, gods of its own. This is after they were taught how to worship God. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities in which they lived. And the men of Babylon made Succoth Banath, and the men of Kuth made Nergal, and the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Seraphites burned their children in the fire to Adramalek and Anamalek. Sounds like real good gods there. The gods of the Seraph of him. They also, they also, verse 32, they also feared the Lord while they're doing this other stuff. And appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. To this day they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord. They do not follow the statutes, nor the rules, nor the laws of the commandment that God had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, You shall not fear other gods, or bow yourselves to serve them or sacrifice to them, but you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power, with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him, and to him you will sacrifice. And the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandment that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods. And you shall not forget the covenant that I have made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. However, they would not listen but did according to their former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise and their children's children as their fathers did, so they do to this day. You know, you can teach people the truth, but you cannot force them to adhere to the truth. We see this today. And I was thinking about this, and this has kind of captured my mind for a while. As groups, major denominations, try to claim both a worship of God and the worship of the gods of our world. We see it all over the world, over the place today. The biggest god of this world today is the worship in the adoration of man. Now just think of the false religions and teachings today and how they try to combine a little of the worship of God with the worship of their God. For example, let's go to Islam. In Islam, the Quran, Jesus is described as the Messiah. Did you know that? He is born of a virgin. He performed miracles. And he was raised to heaven. Islam states that Jesus was not crucified. He did not die on the cross. But was miraculously saved by God. The Quran places Jesus among the greatest prophets. 
but they make no distinction between Jesus and the other Old Testament prophets. Islam considers Jesus to be one of the greatest, but he is a lesser prophet than Muhammad. So you can go talk to a Muslim, and, oh, I believe in Jesus. He's just great. He's, a, he's the greatest prophet. But I also believe this. See the similarities between that and what they were doing in Israel? Very similar. I'm going to worship God. But I'm going to also worship my God. Hinduism. They will say that Jesus is living, along with Krishna and Buddha and others. They say that they have all been united into one very full, very powerful power. And with this power, when this power spreads its hand that Jesus is involved with, all the things that are going wrong with the world will be abolished and fixed. So Jesus is important. They love Jesus. Look what Jesus can do. They marry Jesus to their God. They try to, oh, we're worshiping the true God. We're well, not. Christian science. Jesus is known as their master or way shower. They teach that Jesus did not die, kind of sounds like Islam, and that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary's spiritual thoughts of life. I don't know how that works. And manifestation, and manifestation that Jesus is not God, he's the Son of God, but boy, they love Jesus. They're worshiping God how they want to and something else. New Age. Huh. Jesus is defined in different ways by different teachers, so it's kind of hard to, it's kind of like sticking jello to the wall. These teachings are very disparate. For example, one New Age teacher says that Jesus was the master of Eastern mysticism as a result of him traveling there in his youth. Another says he is the God-man like every other person. Kind of sounds like the NAR little gods theory. But that he had no transparent deity in him. Another says that Christ is not man, but universal love. And love is king. That Jesus was just a man to be the temple through which Christ can be manifest to men. But they love Jesus. They just change him. And our friends, the Mormons, they emphatically state that they worship the same Jesus as Christianity. Even you got Dallas Jenkins, who is uh, just going down the south, going south really fast, who is the producer of The Chosen. Oh, they worship the same historical Jesus. That's what he says. You notice he puts the word historical in there. But they also teach that he was born in the pre-life like everyone else. The only difference, he was the firstborn of a physical union between God and one of God's wives. <clears throat> he was the firstborn. And all of us were his brothers because we weren't the firstborn. We were the second, third, and fourth, and 27 millionth. They say that Jesus obtained his God status while because of his works on earth and therefore was given a world to populate and rule over like billions and billions of other gods. Quote, more gods than there are particles of matter in the universe. That the death of Jesus Christ is pretty much not, not important because Jesus suffered for our sin in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's why you never see a cross in a Mormon church, ever. 
It means nothing to them. If you see anybody wearing a chain that has a cross on it, you know they're not Mormon. Okay? They say, we worship the same Jesus, just like they were doing in Israel. We worship the same God, but they don't worship the same God. And we could go on to many other examples. And I was tempted to jump into the NAR and the prosperity gospel because they do the same thing. They are marrying the worship of God, the true God, with the nations feared the Lord but also served their carved images as it says in 2 Kings 17.41. Liberal Christianity is doing this too. They have tried to marry a worship of God with their views of Jesus into their own non-Christian beliefs. And the reason I went down that rabbit trail is there's a parallel to what was happening in Samaria both before they were captured and after they were captured. The people came in with their own gods and beliefs. Every nation still made gods of its own and put them in shrines in high places. In verse 32, they also feared the Lord. Well, what's God think about that? We know what God thinks about that. What did he do to the northern kingdom? He destroyed them for that very thing. And it says, and to this day, they do according to their former manner. Verse 41, so these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. The children did likewise, and their children's children as their fathers did as they do to this day. Obviously, the people in Samaria were not worshiping the Lord any more than those today who make Jesus who they want him to be. So they can worship what they choose to worship in the manner they live. And I believe we live in a nation that fits perfectly into the mold of Samaria. That's what we are doing here. It's Vodi Bakum who said this. And I think he's right. Everybody loves Jesus until you define him. In reality, they hate Jesus and everything taught in the scriptures except for the cute little platitudes they want to use for their own benefit. And all you have to do is look at the typical TV evangelist and the NAR person. It's right in the thick of it with every other cult and religion out there. We need to be about declaring true Christianity, the biblical Jesus, the true God in the Bible, and not trying to marry those two because they don't fit. They don't work. And we know what God thinks of that. He hates it and he will judge. And so this is a, this is a portion of history. But it's also something that we need to look at and make sure we don't let it creep into us. Because those people in Israel, I don't think they set about to, well, I'm going to do what I can to not worship God. It crept in. It crept in over 220 years, starting with a leader. So that is the end of Israel as a nation. And next week, we're going to go into 2 Kings 18 and start seeing what God did in Judah for the next 135 years until they were captured by Babylon. Let's pray. Yes, do you have a question?